0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg
1: on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are going to be joined in just a few moments by a very, very special guest in a segment that you are going to be really interested in. Something unusual for us on the show. First, a bit of a fish wrap. Today's newspapers, tomorrow's fish wrap, front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Not a surprise, but I think still. Really disconcerting for a lot of people in Northampton and in the surrounding communities. Chief Casper heading to Nantucket, 25-year veteran of NPD, Northampton Police Department, will take over Island Police Force. This by Alexander McDougall, staff writer. After 25 years of service and a lifetime spent in western Massachusetts, Northampton Police Chief Jody Casper is leaving the city to take on a new new role as chief of police for the idyllic island town of Nantucket. I said on the show some weeks ago when it was reported that Jody Casper was a finalist for this position that I really hoped she wouldn't take it and that she would stay in Northampton. And for all of our public and very intense disagreements from time to time, I think she's been a great police chief and I would really miss her. And I urged her to stay in Northampton. And you can see all the influence I have. Isn't, isn't it amazing? I, she just was listening to the show and said, okay, Bill, I'll stay. Oh, no, she didn't say that. But she did Actually, say, she
2: said, oh, Bill wants me to stay, I'm going. It was more like that.
1: She did say, it was, and this quote in the premise is a very difficult decision. I would think that leaving a police force where you have served for 25 years uh, and been the chief for the last nine is, in fact, a difficult decision. Uh, Nantucket is... A uh, snoozy place for nine months a year. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how interesting it is as police chief, but on the other hand, the uh, three months uh, during the warm weather uh, probably makes up for whatever might be snoozy the rest of the year. I think Nantucket is going to get a great police chief, and I wish her all the best. And I do not apologize for any of our disagreements, but I do congratulate her on a quarter of a century of uh, being part of the uh, Northam Police Department and part of the fabric of this community.
2: It, it isn't uh, only this community. Uh, Jody Casper went to Greenfield Community College, which uh, prides itself of its criminal justice uh, department um, tries to be more of a liberal arts, not just sort of a uh, the Blue Veil kind of uh, training that police often undergo. And uh, she went from there to Westfield, and, and both institutions were really proud of her because she incorporated uh, caring into policing, which is what we all want of our... Police, So it is a loss for the entire community, even beyond Northampton. She's a source of pride for many. Um, I also want to say I I know a a former police chief uh, in Nantucket. The politics get intense in Nantucket. Nantucket can be exclusionary. I I do wish her well. I I hope that she does really well. She deserves to do well.
1: Nantucket uh, is going to offer
2: uh, Chief Casper
1: housing because absent that, living there would be totally unaffordable on a police chief's salary. Right. One other story I think we should note, front page, top of the fold, Northampton, Israel, health as peacemaking in Mideast, Northampton-based healing across the divides funds, advises Palestinian and Israeli communities on health. This by staff writer, Maddie Fabian. Uh, The story about healing across the divides, we did a long segment with the founder and executive director, Norbert Goldfield, Northampton resident and physician who is the founder and as we noted executive director. This is a an organization that brings healing, medical attention, medical care to both Israelis and Palestinians and has done so for over twenty years. For those of our listeners who did not hear that show with Norbert Goldfield, it's posted. I think you would find it really fascinating. And congratulations to Norbert in getting that some of the recognition that he so richly deserves for bringing a scintilla of peace and healing to the Israeli-Hamas-Palestinian
2: conflict. Bringing humanity to this conflict.
1: Let me turn the microphone over now to one Larry Hott. I don't know if you need to play Larry's walk-up music. We're not going to play your walk-up music today, Larry, because we're going to do something very different. Talk to us.
3: Thank you, Bill. Good morning, Buzz. I have with me one of my favorite people in the world, Andrew Leland. Now I'm um, hurt. Yeah, well, one of you, also one of my favorite people. Was. <laughs> okay, all right. Come and on, come we're trying to keep band. credibility here with the listener. <laughs> 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 my friend Andrew Leland, uh, who is the author of a book called The Country of the Blind, which Publishers Weekly has called one of the 10 best of the year. Uh, Andrew, I met uh, rowing, actually, on the Connecticut River. Uh, We've been friends for several years now, and I've always wanted to get him on the show, and then he's written this book, which has gotten a lot of acclaim and a lot of attention Tell us the title again. The book is called The Country of the Blind. Let me just give a little better introduction for Andrew, because it's not here just because he's a friend of mine, but he's an accomplished writer. His work has appeared in New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, McSweeney's, The San Francisco... Chronicle. Uh, he is the producer of a long-time, very creative podcast called The Organist. He also has done shows for Radiolab, and he's an editor at The Believer, and he lives right here in Northampton. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me. And I think giving, yeah, let's give you a microphone, too. Okay, yeah. uh, sounds good, what, yeah. That's what we do on the radio. <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me. I, I want to start, Andrew, with with the actual, one of the last pages of your book, hmm. Page 324, actually, where in the acknowledgments. you have image descriptions Hmm. in the notes. I've never seen book jacket images described in the afterwards of a book. So could you just tell me about the cover, why you wrote up the images descriptions there, and also what does the title mean? So the images, what are the images on the cover?
4: Yeah, so the book is... The subtitle of the book is A Memoir at the End of Sight, and it is at its heart a memoir about my experience of, of progressive vision loss. Um, but it also is a work of journalism, um, you know, narrative nonfiction, where I write a bit about my experience losing vision, but then I really take this intentional journey reporting on blindness in the US and around the world in terms of its politics, its culture, its history, and. One of the things that I encountered in that research is this idea about image access for blind people, and it almost—it it strikes some casual observers as almost a perverse idea. Like, well, what does a blind person? What interest might a blind person have in what a TV show looks like, or what a painting looks like, or what a person looks like, even? Right? Like, <laughs> there's this assumption that that's just going to be. Uh, just beyond the, 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 the field uh, or the orbit of a blind person's interest. But in fact, that's not true, and, and many blind people have a, a deep abiding interest, whether or not they grew up with vision or not. And so one of the practices that has emerged in blind culture more in recent years is this practice of image description. And you see it, um, one example is on the internet, so there's something called alt text, where you know an image that gets posted online, there's metadata for it, and one of the tags that you can give to an image is the alt text. So, and and often that will be a description. So I decided that I would include that for my own book, um, for blind readers who might want to, who might be interested in what the cover looks like. So it's, you know, I don't remember exactly what I wrote, but I can, I can tell you about it. It's, you know, and for me, it was really important that this cover, because it's a book about vision loss, I think there's a really strong impulse to have it, be framed as a tragic story. And like, you know, my my, my worst fear was that the publisher would like, have a giant teardrop, you know, like falling onto a baby that was going to like drown the baby or something, uh, you know, and just like a tragic tale of. But one instead,
3: man. you have people on the cover doing things. Yes, uh, it's
4: a teeming metropolis of blind activity, <laughs> uh, you know. So there's a blind skateboarder, which is a real thing, mm. uh, you know, guy on a skateboard with a white cane. Mm. There's blind parents, you know, blind woman with a baby mm. strapped to her chest. There's a, and, and also mm. it was important to me to, for there to be multiple disabilities in some cases. So there's like a blind wheelchair user, a blind guy with a walker blind people of every age, race, ethnicity, and so on.
3: So you're writing about blind and blind people, but why? Well, at this book, it, it starts out as a memoir, but it's also a very well-researched history of blind theory, politics, technology. So what is your personal story? What, what's going on with you, and why did you decide to write the book?
4: Yeah, um, I was diagnosed with a disease called retinitis pigmentosa, or RP, as a teenager, and the way that that disease tends to progress, it's it, it, there's a range of, of etiologies, but basically you first notice it as night blindness, and then the rod cells in the eye, which are um, the retinal cells that are responsible for night vision and peripheral vision, gradually decay slowly over decades, and then eventually um, the cones uh, are affected, and then there's sort of total blindness or or effectively total blindness. And so I'm sort of, I would say like, If I had to guess, I'm like three-quarters of the way through that journey. I still have some central vision, but I'm seeing the world through this very narrow tube.
3: We're talking with Andrew Leland, who is a resident of Northampton, has written a book that's gotten a lot of national attention called The Country of
1: the Blind. Uh, Bill Newman has a question for you. I'd like you to stick, if you would, Andrew, to this question of your sight at this time, how long you've been going, gradually you've been going blind, and how much longer do you think you'll have sight for
4: um, yes, yeah, so I was diagnosed probably when I was nineteen, but I had self-diagnosed uh, a few years before that, when I was sixteen. Right now, I have about six percent of a visual my visual field. So, like I said, looking at the world through like a very narrow tube. and my my doctor at Mass Ear is very reticent to answer that question that I've put to her, that you put to me many times of wanting to know exactly when. and And one of the big discoveries that I made in writing the book, was really the the idea that I might let go of that question, and uh, what I mean by that is, you know, so one thing that I I learned is is all these blindness skills. There's a certain set of skills that a blind person needs to be successful. One of them is like how to use a computer with with a screen reader. So listening listening to everything on your computer rather than looking at the monitor. Um, another one is is cane travel, right? Getting around town with orientation and mobility, being able to keep the cardinal directions in your head and understand uh, where you are. Um, and more and more, I realize that even with the central vision I have, learning and practicing those skills allows me to live my life the same way now as I will uh, with with less vision. I mean, obviously, there's going to be adjustments, and the useful vision I have is quite useful, and I'm using it. But it doesn't do me any favors to obsess over is it going to be in a year? Is it going to be in five years? Is it going to be in 10 years? And the reality is it it could be any of those, uh, or 20 years even. You know, the other piece to that question that uh, it frustrates people, it frustrates me is maybe not satisfying, but is in the lived experience of it really important, is that like what is the actual difference between six degrees that I have now and three degrees, or between three degrees and one degree? And there are functional, practical differences, right? Like... Walking around downtown, it's way easier to catch the don't walk sign if you've got six degrees and three degrees. You just have to do a lot more scanning. But realistically, those skills that I'm talking about, like the ability to read with your ears, to navigate with your ears, you know, to use your use your sense of touch with your cane or with your fingers, those skills I need I can be practicing with six degrees, three degrees, or zero degrees. And so more and more I'm pushing myself to let go of that question as tempting and seductive as it is to obsess over.
3: Let me let me Ask you something? You just mentioned the cane, mm-hmm. and you wrote about walking with your cane folded and hidden in your bag. Yeah, as a form of being in the closet. Uh huh. Can okay, tell me about that.
4: The cane, the white cane, is the ur symbol of blindness. Maybe you know more than anything else. It's you see that white cane, and 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 you think blind, right? Mm-hmm. And and blindness is one of the most stigmatized disabilities in our culture, and so. F- For so many blind people, I've talked to so many blind people, and this was my experience as well. Deciding to use the cane in public is incredibly difficult, and because it in an instant transforms the way people look at you and treat you. And I was living in Missouri. My wife is an academic, and um, I had the cane folded up. And we when we moved to Northampton about seven years ago, I just said, okay. It's not going to be folded up anymore. When I moved to Northampton, I'm going to be a guy with a cane, even though I still felt like a fraud sometimes because I could still see stuff. But the cane would would um, would help me out a lot, and it was a good decision. But it but it forced me uh, to really mark myself as blind to everyone in the world, including close friends and family, and and it was a it was a painful process.
2: Uh, which leads me, Andrew Leland, uh, to. Uh, ask, when you wrote The Country of the Blind, a memoir uh, at the end of sight, was the target audience other people who are blind or people who are not blind and might stigmatize people in the way you just described?
4: Uh, it's it's for anyone. I mean, you know, it's, a, it's, it's published by a commercial publisher, um, you know, and they had no illusions that this was going to be a niche book. You know, I mean, I think they wanted the book to reach a wide audience and I wanted the book to reach a wide audience. And so that, one of the biggest challenges of writing it was how to write for both audiences. And um, I, I have a background as a magazine editor, and uh, I worked for the Believer magazine for many years, and, and I think some of that experience informed the approach of how one can write for both a specialist audience and a general audience, because I think there's a way that you can talk about a complicated subject in a way that the expert audience is going to say, oh, okay, I like I like that metaphor. I've never heard that version of it, but then you can also break it down enough that the uninitiated person can understand it too. And I think I had an advantage in being uninitiated myself at the beginning of this. Like I didn't grow up blind. I I went through my entire education as a sighted person, and it's only in the last like 10 years that I've even dreamed of thinking of myself in this community at all. And so I'm able to bring to both the blind reader who's often had that experience, because many, many blind people have some sight and then lose it. As well as the sighted reader who is sort of joining me in this journey into this strange new world.
1: We are speaking with Andrew Leland. His new book is The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight, a witty, winning, and revelatory personal narrative of the author's transition from sightedness to blindness and his quest to learn about blindness as a rich culture all its own. We'll be right back. More with Andrew Leland right after this
5: all about she wore no husband could give i can tell about the wish she wore every time she starts to shake and begins to talk
0: you're listening to talk the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg
2: Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop.
6: Hello. This is Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegartner reminding you to re-elect me on November 7. I will always remember that being a mayor isn't about the title. It's about the people I serve,
7: you, the residents of Greenfield. I'm ready to continue leading us forward, achieving progress for our city. With your support, I'll carry on providing the leadership and vision that Greenfield needs and deserves. Vote for Roxanne on
5: November 7. Paid for by committee to elect Roxanne Wiedegartner. Fitting in can really feel like it matters, especially when you're in high school. At the Hartsbrook School in Hadley, fitting in doesn't mean conforming, it just means a sense of belonging. If you're into sports or into writing, if you're into arts or into math, if you're into nature or into technology, you can thrive at the Hartsbrook School, and you can thrive academically while being an integral part of a community intentionally focused on belonging. Hartsbrook students take their learning out of the classroom, into nature, into the community, learning through experience experience, experiments, research, and group projects. Hartsbrook prepares a person to look the world in the eye and take responsibility for themselves and the community. Is Hartsbrook the right school for your teenager? For parents and caregivers of 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, there's a Discover Hartsbrook evening next Tuesday. Also next Tuesday, a half-day visiting day for students. There's another visiting day for students December 6th and more in the new year. Register at Hartsbrook.org. The Hartsbrook School on a 55-acre campus on Bay Road in Hadley
0: you're listening to talk the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP
1: we are back with Larry hot and Andrew Leland whose new book is the country of the blind a memoir at the end of sight Larry
3: Andrew you were talking a little bit about your image uh, how you feel about yourself, the idea of walking with a cane or, or not walking with a cane. Uh, what other ways do, do you, does it affect you and that you write about? Uh, I'll give you an example that I found curious. Uh, you talk about something called the photogra- a photograph, the punctum, and as you're losing your sight, you have to think about the memories of a photograph. What do you see from a photograph? How does that affect you? What did you? What is this idea of the punctum? And how does it affect you as a person? Are you, as you become less visual, how does it affect the way you relate to other people and how, and the way you see yourself?
4: <clears throat> yeah. I've, I've got a chapter in the book. That's all about blind. What we started out talking about blind people's relationship to visual culture. And I met a guy who, who his job in grad school, he was uh, getting his MFA in, in writing in fiction writing from Johns Hopkins. And and his job to, to pick up some extra money was assisting a blind philosophy professor, um, and he would like read him his junk mail. Uh, he would read him his, you know, like rejections from philosophy journals. He would read him, you know, articles. Uh, this was this was before the days of screen readers that could do a lot of that for you. Although people still use readers, blind people do. And and he was really struck by the minutia that this blind philosophy professor was interested in. It wasn't just like the, the headlines. It wasn't just like the philosophy journals. It was like, no, read me the text below the headline on like the weird junk mail circular that I got from Sears. And and this baffled my friend for a long time. And and when I was thinking about it, you know, and this is where I, I pick up this idea of the punctum, which which comes from the the French thinker Roland Barthes' book on photography. And, and his idea is that a photograph has um, what he calls a studium, which is like, okay, this is a photograph of Larry Hot in his element in the radio station. But then the punctum for Bart is this is like a little detail that pricks the listener, the, sorry, the viewer. It pricks the viewer. It's like a little, you know. So, so in your example, it might be like, you know, um, a little bit of uh, uh, a tuft of arm hair poking through your your yeah. sleeve, and it's like, and somehow in the photograph of you, that's the thing. But that how does how does that affect
3: you. you? I mean, well, as, so my point is I mean, yeah.
4: that. When you, when you do image descriptions, you have only so many words, yeah. right? And so you're not gonna talk about the tuft of arm hair. You're gonna be like Larry hot" in WHMP. And that's what you get as a blind mm-hmm. viewer. And so I think when I'm thinking about this sort of impossible question of what I'm gonna miss as I lose more vision, the question becomes like, how do I retain access to that punctum, to those like strange little personal details, which is such an idiosyncratic and, and deeply personal way of looking. And and I don't know that I have a good answer yet. I mean, mm-hmm. one answer is, I think, I have another friend who's deafblind, who's the poet, who has a great book. Um, uh, his name is John Lee Clark. And, and he really pushes against the idea of access. And for him, it's like, well, why disabled people, why are we constantly trying to bring disabled people into our world? Why don't we try to go into disabled people's world? And so for him, it's less about like, I want to know every detail in the film, but like what tactile affordances are there in the world? What is there in, the, in, the, in the, the, the tactile world that might be a punctum? What's a tactile punctum look like?
1: Could you tell us, and I, I apologize for my ignorance in asking this question, but when you are the recipient of a description, do you see the object, the place, the people, or is it really, it looks just dark? I'd like to know what your mind shows you.
4: Um, I mean, like I said, I still have central vision. So if I really want to, I can access a photograph. But, you know, my vision is such that if I want to read the newspaper, it's much easier for me to do it in audio than it is to do, to, to do it with my eyes. And so the New York Times, for example, has a wonderful practice of, all, uh, of providing alt text for its photos. So I'll be reading a Times article, and then I'll hear, you know, uh, Larry Hot in his in the studio at WHMP but they'll give a little color on it they'll be like you know and he's where he's standing before a green wall and he's got a stack of books in front of him um, so I don't know what your question really is like do I see that I mean, it's the same thing when I, it's you read really
1: a novel. it really is what do, what do blind do blind people see in their mind or is is or is all well, the let visual me you,
4: let me ask you a question when you read a novel do you see in your mind yes yeah, so often So why would it be different for a blind person?
1: Well, that's what I'm wondering. Are these stored images? Are they uh, new images?
4: Well, okay, so there's an important distinction there, which is the congenitally blind, people who are born blind, (coughs) people who are born blind versus people who are adventitiously blind or become blind later. Uh, The the adventitiously blind, uh, right, they have visual memories, and so there is a certain level of Specificity to the image that's conjured there like they've seen a photograph of the Great Wall of China So then when they read Great Wall of China, they have a sense of it a congenitally-employed person who's only ever Gotten what they've been given right for the Great Wall of China It might be a less specific less accurate you might say image, but but I think in general There's still a world being constructed, you know, I mean it's a deeply philosophical question you're asking it's like how does the mind through language construct ideas and uh, I know a lot of congenitally blind people, and just casually talking to them—you know, people who have never seen—and it does not feel like talking to an alien. You know, it's not like there's a radically different frame of reference. They they can hang with the images that they get through books. So, Andrew,
3: Andrew let me ask yeah. you this: something that comes up in the book quite often uh, is how you relate to women, mm. and the idea of blind people wanting to know what somebody looks like. Yes. And you also talk a lot about this in terms of holding on to what your son looks like, holding on to what your wife looks like. Uh-huh, uh-huh. What makes the, the book work for me is how emotional and real and honest it is. Mm. That you talk about these human emotions and feelings. It's not a cold book about the technology of the blind. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I'm, I'm curious about when you constructed the book,
4: yeah.
3: how worried were you about maybe being too open and how it affected your family?
4: I mean, uh, I checked in with them throughout the writing process, and we had a lot of conversations about it. And I think they knew what kind of book I wanted to write, you know, which and I knew from the beginning that I wanted it to be a memoir that went off into these journalistic and critical directions. And so that was always a part of it. Um, And I, you know, I come from a family of writers who often have written not memoiristically, necessarily, although that too, but just like, mind, family life for uh, for writing. So I think there was a certain level of, of organic feeling around that decision, too.
3: We've been talking with Andrew Leland, who is the author of The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. And we'll be back
1: in a few minutes. More with Andrew right after this.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
8: Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Sarah Robertson. Northampton Police Chief Jody Casper is leaving for a new job in Nantucket, the Daily Hampshire Gazette reports. After 25 years serving the city and nine years as chief, Casper is moving to the island town to lead its police department. Casper was the first woman to ever serve as police chief in Northampton, and was named Woman Law Enforcement Executive of the Year in 2021. City Council President Jim Nash said they'll be seeking public input in their search for Northampton's next police chief. Yesterday, Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia announced a new comprehensive public safety strategy called Ezekiel's Plan to address violence, drug use, and housing challenges throughout the city. The plan is named after the unborn child who died on a public bus when his mother was struck by a stray bullet on October 4th. The plan calls for a $1 million investment in more police patrols, a citywide surveillance system, more oversight of rental properties, and more community outreach services. The plan also includes recruiting 13 new police officers. Franklin Community Co-op has surpassed their fundraising goal to renovate the former Wilson's Department Store into the new home for Greenfield's Market. The co-op has raised over $1.6 million in loans from member owners to relocate, renovate, and expand the downtown grocery store. In 2022, the state purchased the former Wilson's Department Store to develop the upper floors into mixed-income housing, reserving the bottom for the grocery store. The Massachusetts School Building Authority could provide the town of Amherst an additional $10 million towards the building of a new elementary school. The project is expected to cost $100 million, of which the state has already committed to covering about $40 million. The reason for the increase is because the School Building Authority raised the spending cap per square foot for new construction projects. The new school will replace Fort River Elementary School with an anticipated completion date of the fall of 2026. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman.
9: The Co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The Co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow.
8: River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is
7: welcome every child has a spark that's waiting to be ignited that deserves to be ignited at the bement school we know each student's story we know them as individuals kids at bement understand that academic success is an important part of who they are not the only part but an important part their teachers guide them on that quest individually and as a group fostering a sense of responsibility for learning The Bement School serves students in kindergarten through ninth grade. It's a close-knit community of students from Western Mass, from other parts of the country, and other parts of the world. Forming bonds with students whose households and cultures are different gives them a broad perspective on the world even at this young age. As much as academic success is important at Bement, so too is how students learn to live Bement's core values compassion, integrity, resilience, and respect at school and in their communities. Take a closer look at Bement. Contact me, Kim Lachlan, Director of Admission, or visit our website, bement.org.
5: When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2. We'll see you right away. Or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
1: We continue our conversation with Larry Hott and his friend, and now ours, I hope, Andrew Leland, whose new book is The Country of the Blind, a memoir at the end of sight. Larry? Andrew, uh, you've done a
3: lot of work in radio, uh, particularly out in Santa Monica um, on an NPR station and you produce podcasts, and one of the things you've worked on, a Radio Lab, uh, and we're going to play a clip from this Radio Lab uh, podcast in a second, but I uh, wanted to ask you about something you wrote in the book about the National Federation for the Blind, which shocked me. You said that at one point, and maybe still, they did not approve of guide dogs for the blind. That they felt, what? could you explain to me, what was that, their objection?
4: Yeah, uh, th- th- they have... Uh since come around on that as with many issues but the NFB National Federation of the Blind is um like the they're sort of the self-described militant wing of the like the blind mm-hmm. organized the organized blind movement modeled on labor and they have done an incredible amount for blind people in this country on the on the policy level mm-hmm. Um, but often they can be quite recalcitrant, uh, in, in some of their, in some of their perspectives. And, and so the guide dog thing is really the the number one thing for the NFB and for a lot of people who work with blind people is independence, right? Like it's too, it's too often you hear stories about people who lose their sight and say, okay, well, that's it for me. I'm just going to sit in mom's basement for the next 30 years. And the NFB says, no, right? Get out there, find independence, learn how to use a screen reader, learn how to use a white cane. They'll send you a free white cane to anybody, anywhere in the country, um, and, and for them, the guide dogs at the time, the argument was that that's not real independence because you're relying on this sentient, this, uh, you know, this living creature that can have an accident or that can get sick, whereas the cane, it's just a tool, it's just a stick. You know, you break it, you grab another one.
3: Right. Okay, so this is a good setup for this Radiolab piece that you did uh, about uh, people with disabilities in space and, in fact, why they might have an advantage so, uh, could you just say a word about it, and then we'll play a clip.
4: Sure. Um, yeah. So, so I, I was talking to this blind linguist uh, named Sherry Wells Jensen, who wrote a piece for Scientific American called "The Case for Disabled Astronauts," and she basically make. And I, I don't know which clip you're going to play. She might be about to explain all this, but mm-hmm. but basically, she got involved in this project where where she says, "Well, why? You know, th- not only are there is there the the NASA Space Corps, but there's also." you know, all these private space companies, Elon Musk's and um, Virgin Galactic and so on, sending more and more people to space, and are disabled people going to be left out of that, just like they're left out of so much in society? And really, like, how can we make a strong case for why they shouldn't be and why disabled people are just as capable of going into space? So here is Sherry, and this is an episode I produced for Radio Lab for WMIC about this
9: tree, Fire warning lights, smoke warning lights, low voltage lights.
4: So one example is back in 1997 on the Mir space station.
5: There was a fire. Low torch-like intensity sparks flying off the end of it.
4: And even though it was a pretty small fire, smoke starts billowing.
1: Cabins filling with it. You can't see the five fingers in front of your face, headed for a respirator. Fuzzy peripheral vision needing oxygen.
4: Now. The Astronauts aboard did get the fire out. They
7: did a great job using the skill sets that they had.
4: But it did take them 14 minutes to extinguish the fire.
3: Wouldn't it be handy if you had one of your astronauts really good at moving around in the dark and uh, have a person who the dark doesn't bother?
4: Or another example, I don't think people realize that on a space station, it's extremely loud. So
0: this is ambient sound of the International Space Station. Oh, wow.
4: It's quite loud. Yeah, that's pretty loud. So there have even been reports of astronauts having hearing damage after spending a long time in space. But
3: if ASL is your first or one of your fluent languages...
4: Noise doesn't matter. You can still communicate. Or imagine...
10: medium or U-bag is tethered.
4: You're out on a spacewalk and the radio just... Dies. Well, might not be a problem.
7: If you could sign... You know, and a lot of a lot of the
3: time that the astronauts spend now with physical activity. You know, you think about an astronaut's job as being very physical. A lot of the very physical activity is the two and a half hours a day they
5: spend doing um, training. Without constant load on your body, your muscles will start dissolving. Your your bones will start getting reabsorbed back into your body.
3: Doing physical workouts so they can retain the muscle tone
7: and bone density that they came up with. Luckily, we have the capability to run here on the space station, too.
4: So every day, they have to ride on stationary bicycles and strap into this special space treadmill. Well,
7: you don't have to run
3: on the... So where you're going there was if you are disabled or don't have use of your legs, for example, you might have an advantage in space because you don't have to spend all that time exercising. So you now, having produced this clip, and considering yourself somewhat disabled. Mm-hmm. A lot of the book is about how you do see yourself. Um, and you went to Denver to take on this uh, blind training at the uh, one of the institutes there. Tell me, what was that like, to be trained as a blind person? I think they put, they, they, they put blindfolds on you so you're really completely blind?
4: Yeah, everybody who goes to these centers, it was the uh, Colorado Center for the Blind in mm-hmm. Littleton, and everybody who goes, unless you have a doctor's note that says you have no light perception, which by the way is a, 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 a real minority of blind people—only about fifteen percent of blind people have no light perception—so pretty much everybody is wearing these sleep shades, um, which are the same things you see people wear on airplanes, you know, just to complete, and they completely block out all light. And from eight to four every day, every weekday, you wear them. And they—they've—they've they've got this former YMCA building, and there's a Braille classroom, and there's a full kitchen. And um, there's cane travel instructors. And just all day long, you're learning blind skills. And so you're actually – and, and and 99% of the staff is blind. So it's this real, like, blind utopia almost, you know, like you, you to check in and out. There's a Braille typewriter by the door, and, you you know, you, you type in Braille uh, to log in. And, um, I mean, the most powerful thing that I got – I got so much out of that experience. But, you know, I went into it thinking that there was going to be a lot of blind – hacks, blind tips and tricks. And there are things like that that I picked up. But but really, it is a general sense of confidence that the problems that blindness presents are not totally intractable, and that you well, can figure it well out. so that
3: you feel empowered. And that's why I wanted to play that Radio Lab clip, because it sounds like this is empowering, that you can say, yeah, I could be an astronaut.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that has been very slowly dawning on me as I continue to experience blindness, but also to write about it and just report on disability more broadly is the idea of accommodation. And I think that, you know, society has these norms, right? Like, the norm is that you can walk in up the stairs into a classroom, look at the chalkboard, hear the teacher speaking, and that's the default way to get an education. And that if you need uh, an ASL interpreter, if you need a wheelchair ramp, if you need um, accessible materials, you know, for a blind person uh that's an accommodation um and that you're somehow out of the norm and that's like a you know we're going to do you this favor by helping you out by being inclusive because we we're really good people you know and and the reframing of it is more like no you know everybody needs accommodations right like uh the the heat in this room right now is an accommodation for us. You know, human beings need accommodations. The roof over your head, the shoes on your feet, you know, glasses. And there's these pretty arbitrary constructed norms where we say, okay, well, that, like the heat, of course, we all need that. But uh, but what you need is, is something outside. And, um, you know, so when you think about these skills and and what it means to be disabled, it's really, for me, been an experience of pushing against that feeling of being outside the norm and saying... You know, this is just what it, another way of being human, and it might it might look a little different to you, but it actually is the same process that I've been going through my whole life.
3: I wonder if you could say a word about your hearing. Uh, people often think, oh, people who've lost one sense, other senses are augmented, and I know you've done a lot of radio production, particularly this brilliant creative podcast you did called The Organist. Um, Do you find that your hearing changes? Do you find your perception of uh, your other senses change as you're getting more blind?
4: Uh, It's a fallacy that blind people hear better than sighted people. You know, if we did a hearing test right now, like the punk rock shows that I went to in my misspent youth uh, without adequate hearing protection would mean that I don't do better than you. And I'm sure when I'm my dad's age, I'll need hearing aids just like he does. Um, But the thing that does change is your relationship because with, with hearing, because you rely on it more and you use it differently. So like when I listen to my screen reader, which sometimes I I listen to very, very quickly, you know, somebody who doesn't know how to listen will walk by and say, I cannot believe how you can understand that. Like you have special, super blind hearing, but my son who is used to me using it, you know, for a while I was like, it's okay. I can read whatever I want in front of him because it's too fast for him. He doesn't understand it. But lately he's been like, oh, you're reading about, uh, Gaza, huh? I'm like, oh, wow, he uh, he can pick it up now. So, you know, he's fully sighted. It's uh, it's more about just the the brain's plasticity.
3: Is there something about the way people react to the book that has surprised you or changed you, uh, made you think, oh, I didn't realize what I was writing. It got interpreted in a different way?
4: Um, My editor really pushed me, and this is getting back to Buzz's question about sort of who the book is for. My editor really pushed me to keep an eye on the sort of universal themes, and I really resisted that. And I've been surprised by the, you know, obviously I got a lot of emails from blind readers, both people in my position, but also people who are born blind. Um, but I was surprised by folks sort of outside of the disability community who who connected with the story. Um, a number of, of of trans people have written to me to say that, you know, because my book is really at its heart, I think, a book about transition. It's about like, I, I am this sighted person and now I'm becoming a blind person. And what does that journey look like? And, you know, I've gotten at least four messages from different trans friends saying, you know, like, this is, this, this speaks to my experience. And part of what I think they're connecting with is the ambiguity of the transition, that it's not, you know, I think people have this idea about gender transition where it's like, uh, you know, I was a man, now I'm a woman, the end. But like, there's so much more um, ambiguity there. And it's the same thing with sight and blindness, you know, like we were, like I was saying to Bill earlier, like, You know six percent versus three percent or they have good days and bad days so much of that experience of vision loss and just of where do you draw the line between being sighted or being blind is incredibly complicated and ambiguous that uh it makes the idea of transition really tricky
3: we have to draw the line there because we've run out of time thank you andrew leland the author of the country of the blind a memoir at the end of sight Uh, And if people want to find the book, I'm sure it's available all the usual places. (laughs) Um, Thanks again, um, and we'll be looking forward to your next work.
4: All right. Thanks a lot. This
1: is fun. Thank you, Larry Hott, for bringing Andrew Leland to our lives. We'll be right back.
0: talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg coming up right here on whmp
7: hello i'm kim gerald and i'm here to ask you to vote for gwen agna on tuesday november 7th gwen is running for re-election as an at-large representative on the northampton school committee as a teacher at jackson street school i witnessed gwen's efforts to build a school culture of caring learning and social justice She is a leader who listens carefully to the whole community. Please vote for Gwen on November 7th. Paid for by the Committee to Re-elect Gwen Agna.
8: Let's experience fitness together. Hi, this is Jessica, and at Fitness Together, we offer personal trainers and customized workouts either in studio or virtually. Located in Northampton and Amherst, we're here to help you reach your goals, be it weight loss, recovery and rehab, improving health, or simply living well. Getting fit, you'll have the energy to do what you love. Visit us at Fitness Together, Amherst, or Northampton and become a part of our community today. Fitness Together, your journey to wellness starts with us.
10: I know, I know. I always say, why buy it when you can rent it? But maybe you do need to own a tile saw. Maybe a few folding tables out in the garage isn't a bad idea. Come to the auction this Thursday at TJ's Rental. Tools and Tents tables and chairs, china, cotton candy and popcorn machines. Haven't you always wanted to own a dunk tank? How about a bounce house? Tons of bargains, huge auction this Thursday at TJ's rental route 9 and Hadley preview beginning at 8.
7: Hi, I'm Martha
11: Stewart. Every year more than 4 million pets enter shelters here in the United States. My friends at American Humane have been helping animals since 1877. The goal is to ensure that pets have a safe shelter, especially during natural disasters. Adopting a shelter pet allows shelters to help more animals awaiting care. Please consider adopting today and take some time to learn more about American Humane's other work at AmericanHumane.org.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP,
1: We welcome to the show Claudia Lefko, who is a write-in candidate for Ward 3 in the Northampton City Council race, upcoming next week. Claudia, thanks for joining us. I'd appreciate understanding, having you tell us, why would someone decide to run for City Council at the last minute and take on a write-in campaign? What's the motivation?
6: Thanks for having me you know i just want to say before we start it's kind of hard to switch gears here to the real life our day-to-day when what's going on in the world is so pressing and especially in gaza but we'll try and i think that's part of my issue that that things are so there's so many pressing issues in the world at large that we can't have any influence on for the most part that it feels important that in places in the place where you live, you might be able to have some say in how things go and some influence that you might be able to to realize your dreams or whatever for your own city. So, um, as the city council uh, candidates announced, we we kind of waited for for Quaverly, who is the is the candidate, to uh, to talk about some of her stands on the issues that. We, I think, and others are pressing in the city. And we didn't have any satisfaction with that. And so on some level to provoke a conversation, to just bring up some issues and have a platform to talk about them, you know, I decided to launch this write-in campaign.
1: You mentioned Quaverly. That's Quaverly Rothenberg, who yes. is the city council yes. candidate for Ward 3. But my question actually is why so late in this process. I mean, if you had wanted to be city councilor, you could have uh, gotten into this process months and months and months ago. Why now?
6: Some, well, sometimes, you know, you don't want to run against a person because it takes a lot of effort. So you wait to see what is the platform. If you're supporting that person, great, let them, it's a big job, let them take the job. But alas, and so usually campaigning starts after Labor Day. So you wait and wait, and after Labor Day, there was still nothing. And so, you know, I, you know, reluctantly, I must say, through my, you know, hat into the fray.
12: Uh, This is Dan. Hi, Uh, Dan. What is the issues that she did not uh, address that you feel need to be addressed here in Northampton?
6: Well, the, my primary issue has to do with public participation. I was on the uh, school committee th- at large for three terms when was back that? in the 90s. And uh, my issue then was really parent participation in the schools. We had a citywide organization called ACE, Advocates for Children's Education. And our goal was to, to work with teachers and administrators to have more child centered education and to have more arts in the school. My issue now has to do with public participation and the government in general feeling that the city has gotten more and more closed down in terms of the people's people, the people, the the residents' capacity to have anything to say about what's happening in the city, and so that's and that leads to this issue of you know things that like Main Street. The uh historic preservation the 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 uh, report was just released last night and it has it will have a big impact on neighborhoods what the outcome of that is. Um and and the question of, of uh working working with neighborhoods as opposed to downtown, you know, the city. So those were my issues. Well,
1: let me ask you about that because you sent me your flyer, which I appreciated, uh, and you said the city's spending too much time worrying about downtown. They should worry – the city should worry about the neighborhoods. Uh, I – don't quite understand how we can spend too much time worrying about downtown, but you make that criticism. So could you explain that?
6: Well, we should worry about downtown. Let me just say that downtown is really kind of a mess right now. But let me just give you an example. As you know, I live in this Montview neighborhood, which is a small neighborhood in Ward 3, and some years ago, we had uh, apartments built there called City View Apartments, and the, and the neighborhood got traffic calming money. This was probably more than 10 years ago. It was like $12,000 or something. One of the issues when we had traffic studies in neighborhood meetings was that we could calm traffic by painting crosswalks painting crosswalks in our neighborhood along William Street and Down Valley Street and so forth. And, and when we submitted this idea to the city, no, there was no way we were going to paint sidewalks. They said it was not. Even it's our money. But so a few years later, what happens? Downtown, we have the you know rainbow sidewalk. We have all the street painting. We've never been able to spend that money on traffic calming. So the for me, and, and mind you, I'm not an urban planner, but I've really fallen into this this field through the struggle around 107 Williams Street and the question of what is it that we want for the, for a city, for a neighborhood, what makes a good living environment for a person? And, and as a result of that, I feel like what really makes a city vibrant – and it's not just me, but people can go to the web and read other things <clears> – <throat> It's it's vibrant neighborhoods. And so if you keep improving Main Street, but the neighborhoods, I mean, the sidewalks, the streets, whatever, are failing us, it doesn't, I don't think it's going to work. Really, a city has to have vibrancy throughout, not just on Main Street. So that's why I say there's too much focus on Main Street.
1: We just have a little time left. you want to tell us what your other major issues are? Can I just
6: give you – this is my major issue. So let me just say one last thing. The city has used a million-plus dollars to hire these tool consultants for Main Street. This is ARPA money. And my neighborhood is New Village. It's a child care program. They have a waiting list of 63 families. It was just on the front page of the Gazette last week. These people applied for ARPA money. The new village applied for ARPA money, and they got not a penny from the city. And not only didn't they get a penny, but no one from planning or the mayor's office called to say, look, we see you're struggling there. You need ARPA money. How can we help you? Maybe we can't give you what you asked for. So I don't understand how a million dollars for consultants is more important than childcare which isn't a crisis in the city.
1: Any other issues that are <laughs> important to you?
6: Let me see. Of course, my last one has to do with infill. I have a minute. Gosh, it's not that much time. I just want to say that um, development of course is part of, of is part of all this and I know Everyone is talking about a housing crisis, a housing crisis in the nation, a housing crisis in the city, and so forth. But I've become an acolyte of Rutherford Platt in his book, and he talks about humane urbanism. And he talks about developing cities in a holistic way where you take people, nature, and uh, place all into, into your thinking all at once, and I feel like we're not doing that. We're putting houses down on what is the best farmland in the country. So infill is my issue, the way the city's spending its money is my issue, and the lack of pa- participation by citizens, the access to city government, that's my issue.
1: We've been speaking with Claudia <laughs> Lefko She is a write-in candidate for Ward 3 City Council.
6: Can I just say you have to write in my name and address, 40 Valley Street.
3: you
2: did God knows when but you again you duck down
13: the, the literacy project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing and math skills or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If
10: you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you.
8: WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females To apply.
14: WHMP
0: Northampton. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on
2: WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg.
1: And I'm Bill Newman.
2: You know, um, Bill, we have been talking for some time about um, uh, something I care very deeply about because for 20 years I taught as both an adjunct and full time professor at uh, Massachusetts Community College. These jewels that we all uh, consider anchors in our community that uh, provide affordable education, quality education to so many people, and I think is there's a link between our democracy, which is in peril these days, and uh, affordable, quality education. Um, yet there's a little bit of trouble in paradise uh, brewing these days uh, for that uh, that uh, cherished institution of Massachusetts Community College. And with us to talk about it, we're very lucky to have Professor uh, Trevor Kearns from Greenfield Community College and Professor Joan Ardoni. Joan Ardoni is a vice president of the Massachusetts Community College Council, which is the um, local union um, representing um, uh, faculty and some professional staff. Uh, he's also the chair of the bargaining uh, unit, uh, of which Trevor Kearns is a member. Let me start with you, Trevor. Uh, I got to watch you for years. I got to <laughs> uh, had the privilege of getting to know you for years and uh, just saw how committed you are to students at Greenfield Community College, to the institution of Greenfield Community College, but also for fair terms and conditions of employment. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what the MCCC is, and um, what's what's a brewing here.
11: Sure, Buzz, uh, you know, I miss you. It's been a while. (laughs) Buzz and I talked about teaching a class together focused on justice. So I'm a professor of English at Greenfield Community College. I've been teaching there for 15 years. I'm a full-time professor. Uh, But I have had to teach as an adjunct professor uh, at the same time as a side hustle just to make ends meet ever since I came to this wonderful state. Um, So the MCCC, the Massachusetts Community College Council, it's the statewide union for all community college faculty and professional staff who serve students. Um, And Trouble in Paradise is, you know, those are the words. uh, You know, at Greenfield Community College, we're actually number one in the state for, among the community colleges for retention, for graduation. Retention means. Retention means uh, students going to college and staying in college, (laughs) like year to year. And then uh, in student surveys, we come out, number one as well um, in the whole state. So, you know, it's great. We have this wonderful local community college. Um, but it's what's going on in terms of the funding for the whole system is unsustainable. Um, and there's, there's multiple aspects to this that I'd like to touch on during our conversation. Uh,
2: uh, and I hope we do. I think that it's so important for people to understand that these faculty, I, I saw it firsthand. People are so committed to students, student learning, yep. their own learning. It's just a wonderful place to be. It was such a joy to be at GCC, and I know it is throughout the community college system a joy for those people who work there, and yet, um, Joan Ardoni, I have just read that we basically, uh, the cost of living between Massachusetts and California is roughly exactly the same, maybe within 2%, um, but community college faculty salaries are 50% lower in Massachusetts than they are in California. So what are you doing about it, Vice President Joan Ardoni?
10: Well, one of the things that we're doing about it is that, uh, we're going to be delivering some petition signatures to Governor Healy tomorrow at the State House at around 1030. We'll be talking with, uh, one of the Deputy Chiefs of Staff for her, uh, for policy and her cabinet, uh, at 1030. I'm going to be delivering those 5, 5,500 signatures on the petition. And we're asking the governor to, uh, award us the same raise that she's already awarded uh, all the other higher education unions. So, uh, you know, what's, what's happened is, is that uh, we're so far behind that even this 8% isn't going to do a whole lot for us, but uh, we're being denied this increase by bureaucrats in the Office of Administration and Finance who say that we have to take 2% this year Instead of the 8% that Governor Healy offered everything else, everyone else, because that 2% came from Charlie Baker. And it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, There's no law that says that once a sitting governor uh, is no longer in office, that uh, what uh, he left behind has to be followed in terms of these salary offers. There's nothing in Massachusetts General Law 150E which covers that uh, topic that says that's actually the case. And so uh, we're going to go to the Governor Healy and ask her to, to make it right for the community colleges. I mean, well, our
2: let, let me understand that a little bit better. Um, you teach, you're a professor sure. at Middlesex Community College. You're also vice president of the uh, MCCC, which we just described. And you're on this uh, bargaining unit. Now, my understanding is that there was an agreement uh, to 2%. And that, uh, could you describe what that agreement is? and was, and why it doesn't still pertain.
10: Sure. As a matter of fact, there wasn't an agreement for the 2% for the fiscal year starting uh, July first, twenty 2023 and extending it to June of 2024 because we negotiated a two-year contract because the state's negotiator told us that we would get better uh, a better salary offer from Governor Healy if we did a two-year deal. So that's what we did. And then after we had done the two-year deal, after we had ratified it, then we were told that we we're not going to be able to get Governor Healy's parameters uh, at the same time as the other higher education unions got it. And so that's blatantly unfair. Uh, essentially, we were lied to because we understand now, after hearing more information, that the person who offered us that deal should have known that he wasn't allowed to offer us that deal. So, But he offered it anyway. So we were misled and we've been done an injustice. And while that person is no longer working uh, for the state in that capacity, uh, that's nice. So maybe it won't happen again, but we've still been damaged. And that's why we want the 8% now.
2: Well, Professor Trevor Currence, you teach English. So let me get this straight. You were asked to make concessions for 2% over a two-year contract. Mm-hmm. Why doesn't 2 mean 3 yeah, why does it I'm a do? little yeah. confused I don't here.
11: teach math, so maybe I'm not the best person <laughs> to uh, to uh, uh, point this out. But yeah, so normally our contracts are three-year contracts. That's the maximum contract you can negotiate under law. And um, Joe mentioned the word parameters. So what happens in the state is um, for the public sector unions, the governor issues these things called parameters for um, all the public sector unions. And it's just it just means the maximum raise uh, in terms of your salaries that you can get. And so uh, Governor Baker had a two-two-two 2 um, salary parameter set that he had. So 2% raise each year for three years. Okay. So our, our union, the MCCC, is actually out of cycle in terms of negotiating our contracts. We're out of cycle with all the other public sector unions. So we want to get back in cycle because it gives us all more bargaining power. Um, the state came to us in 2020 when we sat down to negotiate our latest contract. And they said, hey, why don't you do a two-year contract, because then that'll put you on cycle, which is something we wanted. And you got a new governor coming in who is famously pro-education, so you'll get a better deal under her in terms of the raises, the parameters. And we said, okay, we will forego talking about negotiating about uh, a lot of specific issues that we wanted to move forward in order to get that two-year contract. It seemed advantageous to us. We negotiated it. We sat down to sign it this March, and then we were told, oh, by the way, you're going to have to take the 2% for the third year of your two-year contract. So that's where we're at right now. And we're, you know, the, more, the most immediate thing that the MCCC is pushing for is to get the same 8% that all the other public higher education unions have gotten.
2: So Trevor Kranz, most of us, I'm sure most of our listeners who, who aren't personally involved with the community colleges... Um, Most of them are concerned about students, are concerned about learning, are concerned about education, Mm -hmm. and the impact that has on our communities. So what is the relationship between
11: compensation Mm -hmm. for faculty and professional staff and student learning? So our working conditions are the students' learning conditions, period. Period. Um, The community college system is at a point of uh, near crisis, maybe it's past that point now, Um, in terms of hiring. We can't, because the salaries are so low, we can't attract the kinds of faculty and professional staff, even administrators. There are just failed searches for administrative positions which pay a lot more. Even those who want to come. Right, uh, because they can't afford to do these jobs. Uh, So if you can't staff the system and you can't staff it well, then the students are going to suffer
12: this is Dan I have a question for for you uh, maybe, maybe both talk about the workload and how it's changed over the years are you doing significantly more are you teaching more classes can you go through that step by step for us
2: Joe Nardoni can you answer Dan's question
10: yes I can uh, well, the way the work has changed over the past 29 years that I have been there is in uh, a couple of significant ways we are getting more students now uh, well, let me just back up. Let me just start by saying we're getting more students who are students of color and who are students who are, come from economically uh, impoverished situations. And as often happens with uh, students in those groups, uh, they're coming to us with uh, with needs beyond their educational needs. They're coming to us with needs of housing insecurity, food insecurity. Most of our community colleges, for instance, have... Uh, most of our community colleges have food banks on their campus. And believe it or not, uh, a number of our own faculty and professional staff have to use those food banks because they cannot afford to actually pay for their own food. So uh, what happens because of the needs of our students coming to our uh, college, beyond just the, the cost of going to it, have gotten so extreme over the last you know, 29 years that I've been here that... The job has changed in just these ways. It takes more time from us to actually grade our students' papers than it used to because our students come to us with skills that we have to remediate while we're teaching them college-level composition, for instance. And what that means is, is that for someone like me, when I'm teaching five courses a semester and I teach only writing courses, I read upwards of a million words a semester every semester because i'm reading students papers more than once i'm giving them commentary on it more than once and they are rewriting them and that kind of work and effort just becomes really uh compounded our professional staff members for instance have seen their workloads rise up professional advisors shouldn't have more than 180 Students to take care of. The typical load for our professional advisors is 250 students per advisor. Uh, this overwork, uh, what this chronic level of overwork does to our faculty and professional staff is that it just makes it impossible for them to deal with our students the way they all need to be dealt with. And
12: a quick follow up on average salaries for somebody starting off or maybe working for the first couple of years. What kind of salary range for somebody like a full time? Professor, how much are they making?
11: Well, it depends on well, your the, the experience that you're coming in with. Oh, I'm sorry, sure. Joe. I didn't mean to no, talk go for you. But it depends on the uh, the amount of experience that you're bringing into the system and your credentials. So, okay. um, in in the system, we have people who have master's degrees, we have people who have PhDs, who have ABDs, and so we have salary grids where you're paid you know, depending on that. Depending okay. On. Yeah. But so the average uh, and you know the average is something like um, it's around like sixty thousand dollars, I think, for for starting faculty. And this is like full-time, full-time faculty, full-time faculty. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's nowhere near what faculty are getting at the four-year institutions, uh, faculty who are teaching less, like their focus is half on research and half on teaching at the community colleges. Our focus is on teaching. teaching. We're transforming lives. Right. Uh, and, you know, we're doing it for anybody. Anybody in the Commonwealth can go to a community college. If you've got a Pulse and a GED or a high school diploma, or if you, even if you're working on a high school diploma, you're a dual-enrolled student, you can go to a community college and get started on a new track in life, enrich yourself, uh, you know, start a, start a new career. Like, this is where the magic happens. This is, mm-hmm. community this
2: is where the magic happens. Yeah. And, and also, we hear so much about uh, about student debt. And yes. people who just, you know, they they, they want to teach at a community college, but their debt is so great that they can't take a job for $60,000. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they they wanted to be educators, and they end up not being educators. We are uh, talking to Professor uh, Trevor Kearns from Greenfield Community College and Professor Joe Nardoni, who is from Middlesex Community College and is a vice president of the Massachusetts Community College Council, which is involved in uh, bargaining right now for fair wages For faculty members. When we come back, I want to ask both of them. We've heard a lot of news, some of it very good, about Mass Reconnect, which is a program to fund free community college for adults who are 25 and older and have lived in Massachusetts for a year or more. Um, We've heard a lot from the president's uh, wife, Jill Biden, about uh, the need to have free community college and to commit more resources to it. And uh, I'm going to talk about their struggle for a fair wage in the context of better enrollment, and some of the good news we're hearing about community college. Trouble in Paradise, we'll be right back.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
8: Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward@whmp.com or call me at 586-7400.
15: WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. Where is your pain? In your knees? Hips? Your back? Don't let it sideline you any longer, and don't let them tell you surgery is your only option. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, restoring and repairing damaged joint tissue the natural way, using healing properties from your own body to bring you lasting relief with no drugs and no downtime. QC Kinetics is trusted by patients all over America with 150 clinics nationwide. Get started now so you can live big in 2024. Talk about a great use of your fsa and hsa put them to work getting you the relief you need so badly and again there are no drugs no downtime and no surgery call qc kinetics today for a free consultation let their medical professionals give you a better path towards that pain-free life call 413-992-5450 that's 413-992-5450 413-992-5450 The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24 7. Try their digital only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit GazetteNet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
2: And we are continuing our conversation with community college professors, Joe Nardoni and Trevor Kearns. And uh, Bill, you had a question that you wanted to ask uh, the professors.
1: Well, I'd like to know how much more community college professors, teachers, educators have to work uh, than persons... Elsewhere in the system, teaching five classes—that's three more classes a semester than a professor would have to teach, which is considered a very full-time job at UMass Amherst. How is it possible that the people who teach, who are there to teach, not to uh, do something else, are treated so badly and have been treated so badly in our Commonwealth? I, I don't get it.
10: That's the like hundred million take that dollar question. None, because the answer. The answer is very, is very disappointing and disheartening to hear, but it's just the truth. The reason why our salaries are so low is because we're part of a system that has become institutionally racist, and the institutional racist of the conception of the community colleges in Massachusetts can be understood just by reading the charter that established us, because we were here to teach the underrepresented and the impoverished people and as you well know when you have a system that values people based upon the money they bring in then the people who uh, provide services to the people who are the least poor or the people who are underrepresented get told that we're not as valuable as everyone else so what's really going on in this whole issue is that our work is not being equally valued as the work of the professors at UMass. And this is not to at all in any way denigrate the work that the professors at UMass do. They deserve their salaries. We deserve salaries that are equal to theirs. And if we get salaries that equal the cost of living, we'll be really close except for a small differential be- between the UMass faculty who have PhDs and, those, and most of us do not. All right, so then the next part of that process is if you want to know how community college professors can do this. Well, the fact is is that most of them can't. And we have a, a segment of our faculty called adjunct faculty who actually are part of the Division of Continuing Education unit in the C, And that unit was actually devised at its inception so that full-time faculty could actually afford to live in Massachusetts by teaching a couple of adjunct courses. Now, the system has changed over the years since it was first started out, and now we have a ton of adjuncts who are uh, you know, working at several class- colleges and teaching upwards of five classes a semester. Uh, but that's also happening to full-time faculty members. I know two folks at Middlesex all by themselves, who uh, one is an English professor, and I don't know how he does it, who teaches nine classes a semester in order to make ends meet for his family. I know another professor who's a communications professor and she's teaching 10 courses a semester in order to get a salary that, uh, and she's got two master's degrees and a PhD. In order to make a salary that's close to what her partner makes, uh, she has to do that additional work. So these are the things that make it, in my view, heroic, the work that our faculty and professional staff are doing at the Massachusetts Community Colleges, because they're giving so much, and they're being paid so little, and they're working themselves to the bone in some cases. And you know what happens when people get overworked.
2: Well, uh, one of my favorite—I uh, I remember the saying that said that people who teach in high school do it because they love the kids. People who teach in uh, community college do it because they love to teach. People who teach at four-year institutions do it because they love their disciplines. And people who teach in Ivy schools do it because they love themselves.
15: I always think back of that.
2: I don't want to leave this conversation without talking a little bit about the importance of the Cherish Act, because Mm -hmm. what we're talking about is funding, and funding starts with the legislature. And so if you would, Trevor, Trevor, could you tell us a little bit about the Cherish Act and um, what the position of the MCCC is?
11: Sure. I mean, I was shocked when I came to Massachusetts uh, for this job. To uh, Massachusetts is famously pro-education; it's the education state. Everybody talks about, you know, how great ed- ed- education is in Massachusetts. I was shocked to find how underfunded the community college system is in Massachusetts. It really has been underfunded structurally for decades. Um, both on the level of in- infrastructure, so our buildings are falling apart. There's like hundreds of millions of dollars of deferred maintenance in all these places. When I first started teaching at GCC and first met Buzz Eisenberg, it was a plywood
2: c- capital of the there world.
11: Was the, pl- the core of our main building had been closed up for over a decade for a- an asbestos removal project that just dragged on and on and on because of a lack of funding from the state. And by
2: the way, it is now beautiful. What the, it the is restoration now is wonderful. Yeah, yeah.
11: it's true. Um, but there's still issues with the building, like the HVAC system is nuts and. <laughs> There's a lot more work that has to be done, and the funding just isn't there from the state. So that's one of the main things that the Cherish Act would accomplish. The Cherish Act basically would do four things. It would um, provide the funding for the state to actually take care of and maintain the buildings that it owns uh, across the uh, public higher ed system.
2: It it would lock the per-student funding, yes, per capita funding, to a 2001 era that we already had. <laughs>
11: That we left in the dust, We left in the dust. I don't know about you, but 20 years ago, yeah, uh, Yeah. it was a while ago. Right. Um, Another thing that the Cherish Act would accomplish is uh, it would set up a plan for debt-free public education across the system. And, of course, we have mass reconnect. Yes.
2: The governor and legislature have begun that process, but for people who are over the age of 25 and haven't received their their associate's degree yet and have been living here for more than a year. So hopefully that
11: is a trend that we're seeing. Yes. And the community colleges, like, we love the idea. We want community college to be free for everyone. We welcome everyone. We teach everyone. We are the people's college. <laughs> That's what we do. And so we want everybody coming come through our doors. Um, but we can't do it without support ourselves. We can't do it without um, making a living wage. Uh, so another thing that the, the Cherish Act would accomplish is Raise up the salaries of faculty and professional staff so that we c- so the system is sustainable. People aren't gonna be leaving it for other jobs. Could you go
1: back to one thing? Sure. Is this a done deal on the contract? The state's gonna impose its will, you're not gonna get a raise, they're not gonna put money into community college, or is the Cherish Act going to be an antidote for this?
11: So there's so the short term is we want the same eight percent that the other public sector unions have gotten this year already. Uh, some bureaucrats in the government are telling us we can't have that, and we have to take a 2%. So we have this petition campaign. Uh, you can go to bit.ly forward slash fairpaymccc, and that'll take you right to the petition. You can sign that. We're delivering that in a couple of days.
2: Can they get it by, if they just do Mass Community College Council, would they be able to like, uh, I'm not to find sure the we petition? have a
11: link on our, um, on our homepage, Sounds but, like but we should. might. But we might. Um, Uh, So the Cherish Act is addressing longer-term structural issues across the entirety of the system, not just community college. So the Cherish Act is about more than the community colleges. It's also about public higher education, period, across the state. And it's addressing longer-term structural issues. Now, that still doesn't bring us up out of this 50% hole that we're in in terms of our salaries compared to the cost of living um, that's something that we are going to be pushing for. We're going to have to have some sort of equity pay bump like the MBTA got, got in order for the system, the community college system, to be sustainable into the future. Um, so the last thing that the Cherish Act would do would be um, to increase hiring positions for um, critical student support services. I'd say at GCC, we have about 1,500 students now. Um, we have one-person departments providing critical services to those students where there's one person. Providing a, a particular kind of service or particular kind of resource to fifteen hundred students—that's not adequate. It's not sufficient. These people are overworked. Uh, we need—we need to hire more people. So, in, how do you hire people? Yeah, pay them.
2: And the CHERISH Act would also prohibit tuition and fee increases for students, right? As so that's long part of the as debt. things are adequately exactly.
11: Funded. So that's part of the—that's part of the debt-free uh, part. You know, the the pillar of the CHERISH Act. Yeah. Yeah,
2: well, it's really important. I hope uh, listeners uh, let their legislators know um, that they do research about the Cherish Act and look at the uh, situation that our community college heroes who are uh, educating our, our children and ourselves um, are facing, just trying to um, be able to uh, maintain a living and support their family while doing that which they love and we need
11: so much. Can I just say one more thing about contingent faculty? Absolutely. The majority of courses... Excuse
1: me, contingent faculty, does that mean the same thing as adjunct? Same thing.
11: It's contingent labor. So you hire somebody uh, with a contract for one semester to teach one course, you're paying them this much, they're not getting pension benefits, they're not getting retirement benefits, they're not getting medical benefits. It's just a a contract where you get paid to teach a course, and that's it. And you have hardly any rights compared to full-time faculty members. Now, across the country, this is like a nationwide problem, it affects Massachusetts as well, Um, something like at the given institution, anywhere between like 70 to 90% of courses are taught by adjunct faculty members with very few rights and no health insurance and so on. And that is true of the community colleges as well. Um, I teach my, you know, I'm a full-time professor of English. I also teach computer science classes as an adjunct to help make ends meet because I happen to have a degree in computer science and. I mean, it's all writing, you know. You're writing code. You're writing sentences. There's a similarity there. Um, but, but I, I, I do I'm remember those, when yeah. I – Don't I,
9: go to crypto. Please. Please <laughs> oh, no, don't, don't no, go no. there.
11: Oh, but trust me. I, I have a thing or two to say about crypto to my students. Yeah. I just
2: remember when I first started, which was – I was an adjunct faculty member for, from 96 to 99. And then in 2001, I became a full-time faculty member at Greenfield Community College and learned there had been 76 full-time faculty in the 70s at GCC. When I started, there were 56, and it's gone down since then, right?
11: Right. So part of what the Cherish Act would do would increase hiring full-time people because the students have better experiences with, they have more connections with, they have more access to full-time faculty who are there for them, who are connected to the institution, who understand how the institution works. Uh, and adjunct faculty members, a lot of them work at the same place over and over again, but you don't get the same experience necessarily.
2: I really want to thank you, Joe Nardone, for joining us today. I really want to thank you, Trevor Kearns, not just for joining us today, but for everything that both of you do uh, for uh, our communities, for our commonwealth, for our country, for our democracy, community colleges. Please, listeners, let your uh, let your legislators know how much you're in support of this. Um, uh, the, the bargaining in good faith means... Two sides have to bargain in good faith. Thank you. We're going to be right back. We're going to talk about climate change and its impact on insurance these days right after this.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
8: Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Sarah Robertson. Northampton Police Chief Jody Casper is leaving for a new job in Nantucket, the Daily Hampshire Gazette reports. After 25 years serving the city and nine years as chief, Casper is moving to the island town to lead its police department. Casper was the first woman to ever serve as police chief in Northampton, and was named Women Law Enforcement Executive of the Year in 2021. City Council President Jim Nash said they'll be seeking public input in their search for Northampton's next police chief. Yesterday, Holyoke Mayor Josh Garcia announced a new comprehensive public safety strategy called Ezekiel's Plan to address violence, drug use, and housing challenges throughout the city. The plan is named after the unborn child who died on a public bus when his mother was struck by a stray bullet on October 4th. The plan calls for a $1 million investment in more police patrols, a citywide surveillance system, more oversight of rental properties, and more community outreach services. The plan also includes recruiting 13 new police officers. Franklin Community Co-op has surpassed their fundraising goal to renovate the former Wilson's department store into the new home for Greenfields Market. The COP has raised over $1.6 million in loans from member owners to relocate, renovate, and expand the downtown grocery store. In 2022, the state purchased the former Wilson's department store to develop the upper floors into mixed-income housing, reserving the bottom for the grocery store. The Massachusetts School Building Authority could provide the town of Amherst an additional $10 million towards the building of a new elementary school. The project is expected to cost $100 million, of which the state has already committed to covering about $40 million. The reason for the increase is because the school building authority raised the spending cap per square foot for new construction projects. The new school will replace Fort River Elementary School with an anticipated completion date of the fall of 2026.
15: Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says
7: we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist.
0: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts.
8: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman.
9: The Co-Op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The Co-Op has all your baking essentials, like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyo. Put a little oven in the oven, breads and brownies, cookies and cake, let your creative inspiration flow.
8: River Valley Co-Op, wild about local. Everyone is
7: welcome. Every child has a spark that's waiting to be ignited that deserves to be ignited. At the Bement School, we know each student's story. We know them as individuals. Kids at Bement understand that academic success is an important part of who they are. Not the only part, but an important part. Their teachers guide them on that quest, individually and as a group, fostering a sense of responsibility for learning. The Bement School serves students in kindergarten through ninth grade. It's a close-knit community of students from Western Mass, from other parts of the country, and other parts of the world. Forming bonds with students whose households and cultures are different gives them a broad perspective on the world even at this young age. As much as academic success is important at Bement, so too is how students learn to live Bement's core values compassion, integrity, resilience, and respect at school and in their communities. Take a closer look at Bement. Contact me, Kim Lachlan, Director of Admission, or visit our website, bement.org.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
2: And we are back, and I am just so pleased. Um, we have somebody that um, can teach us a lot about something that's so important to so many of us, which is the insurance industry. And uh, I'm particularly, I asked Peter Whalen of Whalen Insurance to come uh, on and talk to us because uh, we all, except those who are climate deniers, we all recognize. Uh, the impact of climate change, how it's impacting our lives, our property, um, our children's future. And uh, in the context of climate change, we keep reading about these destructive hurricanes that are hitting both coasts, uh, just talking about the United States here, um, about the wildfires that often have decimated Colorado and California and the flooding that we saw right here um, this summer that decimated so many of our farmlands uh, our farms and the topsoil that washed away and um, the impact is unbelievable and meanwhile we all have insurance to secure our home and to secure our cars and uh, so I asked Peter to come on and talk to us about the impact of climate change about just give us a little primer in insurance and Peter thank you so much for joining us today Well, thank you for having me, Buzz. So this topic, I mean, I'm focused on climate change, but there's so much that people don't understand about insurance, about what is an exclusion, or what is a deductible, and how do you make decisions, and um, meanwhile, a lot of people are really concerned, because particularly in the area of homeowner's insurance, we keep saying prices Mm -hmm. increase and increase. So what are we seeing, and why is it happening?
14: Well, we have two hours, right? (laughs) Uh, insurance is definitely going up, and it's not just home insurance, it's auto insurance. Uh, and a lot of it is just the price of rebuilding things. You know, I, uh, one of my insurance companies claims folks came into the office recently, and he gave a good example. He said that the, uh, the Toyota emblem on the front of all Toyota cars um, used to be $75 to replace, and now it's $750 to replace. Wow. And it's not that it's just—that's not just pure inflation. That's where they're putting the cameras. So all cars, you know, they—they're they, like computers. Every bumper's a computer with the sensors and the cameras. Every windshield's a computer. So things that used to—you'd you'd get a fender bender and you think that uh, you're going to get a fix for a thousand dollars—it's now four thousand. That just happened to me. Uh, my wife backed into it, uh, uh, a tree. Just keep, keep your, your marital disputes yeah. out of this radio station. <laughs> uh-huh. Come on, Peter. <laughs> and I thought it was going to be a $1,500 repair, and it was 4000 So that's what's happening on the, uh, the, uh, the auto stage, and, and you already touched upon some of the things going on in homeowners. We should be very thankful that we live where we do, because if we were just still in Massachusetts but just on the coast, if you're paying $1,000 to your homeowners now, you'd probably be paying two to three times that and maybe not getting as good a, a policy.
12: Can I just, Dan, this is Dan, I just want to add that I got a letter in the mail from my car insurance the other day okay and i've seen that the car insurance companies have been consolidating so now it's farmers they sent me a letter and said hey we're going to increase your monthly deductible by sixteen dollars now did i get a parking ticket that i get anything no it's just hey we're going to charge you more sixteen dollars a monthly premium i'm sorry not deductible monthly yeah. premium so i by sixteen dollars and then i do the calculation over the year and i'm like wait a minute What's going on here? I didn't get any worse. I, I, I haven't broken any laws. I haven't done anything to my car. I got no accidents. But that's what you're talking about. I'm talking all about the costs are, are rising, so they're just going to pass on the cost to the consumer.
14: And in insurance companies, believe it or not, even with those increases, are losing money. So more rate increases are, are coming your way. And I'm sorry to say that you know it's it's hard on us too because we're dealing with a lot of angry people, and legitimately so. And and uh, we're an independent agent; we represent several companies. So in the old days, if their policy renewing, you know, their, the account was renewing a house and two cars, and it was going up fifty or hundred dollars, you'd say okay. And now it's five hundred, and so you could feel compelled, as we should, to shop it through all of our companies. So it's a lot more work, and oftentimes we aren't able to save even then. So it's it's an issue. It will settle out but i think there's a uh, because of some of the changes that i just highlighted you know they have to the market has to catch up the pricing has to catch up
1: peter i'd be interested to know whether the companies really are losing or making money I meaning the, the big insurance carriers and there there are a number of them because uh, the concern i have is that they are taking advantage of a situation to increase costs to consumers uh where those the extent of those increases may not be justified. What do you what do you say to that?
14: I would say that there's probably some companies that aren't losing as much as others, and they're sort of taking advantage by increasing. They see their competitors increasing uh, the premiums, so they're doing it as well. But most most of the insurance companies that I represent uh, are losing money. They're, you're talking about the big ones. You're talking about. I'm talking about the Hanover's, the Arbella's, the Mafres. Uh That's who I do most of my personal lines with. But um, also, the. They're, they're, some are doing well. Most
2: are not doing well at all. Peter, well, in this, uh, we have in Massachusetts uh, a regulatory agency, a commissioner of insurance, and rate increases. There has to be a request. There has to be evidence, and a decision is made by... A panel that the insurance commissioner convenes, right? Uh,
14: yes, it used to be uh, price fixed, where everybody had the same rates that they offered, and that was up to 2008. And the insurance, the, the government would look at it, and the legislature would actually vote on the cost of your insurance. Uh, and this was particularly uh, uh, this was specific to car insurance, and they'd see how the industry did the year before, and if they made money, they'd lower the prices, and if they lost money, they'd increase the prices. But yes, Buzz, you, you, they definitely have to apply for rate increases and be and get it approved and
2: justify it
14: and justify it, and the regulator, regulators hardly ever push back because they are justified.
12: Uh, this is Dan again. Can you talk about flood insurance in this area specifically here in western Massachusetts? I mean, that Connecticut River, you know, does it spell trouble for the future for insurance in this area?
14: If things continue uh, with the heavy rainfall, uh, then I, I would say yes. Flood insurance is lousy insurance coverage. You know, everybody thinks that if their basement gets flooded and they have flood insurance, they're covered. And that's not the case. The, flood, the flooding has to go over the first floor. Anything in the basement except for your utilities is not covered, including if you have a finished basement. So all those nice carpets and couches and... and uh,
12: um. So don't buy a place with a basement is what I'm hearing. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing from Pete.
14: Well, not along the river. You know, <laughs> it's, it, you know we, we usually...
10: Uh, but,
12: but then that comes down to the models, right? I'm sorry to interrupt, but that comes down to the models. Like, do I trust that my home is in an area that is flood prone? My, when now we've seen we don't know what models to trust, Right. The models are changing. Conway I heard just the other day
14: was the rainiest place in United States and Canada. They had seventeen inches of rain in July. And uh you're Buzz, you live up in I that uh, neighborhood. I am you're, not in You're in Nashville, But uh, yes, that's true. um and, and so things are changing I would just but say
2: for the Hilltowns, the higher we are, the better off we are. We but are. Conway got slammed. <laughs>
14: they they did. And and I hope there's not a lot more of that, but it could happen. You know, we're 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 seeing we're, th- we're seeing things deteriorate, not get better
2: at this point in time. So Peter Whalen of Whalen Insurance, uh, I just want to follow what Dan was asking about. People hear about uh, flood insurance. You have to have a rider at times, floodplain exclusions. Could you just, just tell us about that? Sure.
14: Well, anybody can get flood insurance. Even if you sit up on top of a hill and you don't think you need it, you probably won't buy it. If you are in a floodplain, and there are maps to designate this— and you have a mortgage; you will be forced to buy flood insurance. For all the other people, is
2: optional. The bank will say you must have that coverage. The bank drives that. And can you shop? Is it you know? We see all these ads: Progressive versus Geico. Can you it, it, should people be shopping for the best deal?
14: Uh, they should definitely be shopping for the best insurance deal overall. But when it comes to flood insurance, it's just the national. Flood program. I mean, you'll you'll see companies put attach their name to it, but they're almost all sending their uh, sending their risk to the National Flood plan, uh, uh, program because they don't want to
2: absorb the risks themselves. Well, as an insurance agent, does um, climate change concern the industry? What what's the inside? I want to peel back the curtains and look at what the industry really feels about climate.
14: Well, one thing you should know is all insurance companies buy reinsurance because they and they can do it on on. on uh, there's two different types. There's facultative, which is they don't want to have a, a single loss over a million dollars, or the reinsurance kicks in, or over the course of the year they don't want to have more than a hundred million. And it depends on the size of the company. What what kind of assets do they have? Can they withstand a billion, or do they need to uh, get reinsurance at fifty million? And the reinsurers are the ones that work with these these weather models, and the cost of that has been increasing tremendously. One of uh, my—the chairman of one of the insurance companies I do a lot of business with said that they anticipated a 20 to 30% increase in their reinsurance costs last year. It was
1: 100%. Can I ask ask this? Because Warren Buffett, known for his acumen in making money, uh, acquired for his company, Berkshire Hathaway, the company called General Ray— General Reinsurance, did that years ago. Is reinsurance a good business?
14: For the most part, it's a very good business because they're only getting involved if the losses are very, very heavy. But they're always trying to hedge their bets, like everybody else in the business, and they see what's happening, and so they're increasing the cost so that if they their, their customers, the insurance companies, uh, have more claims that they were anticipating,
2: that the reinsurers will be tagged for that. I want to go back uh, one more time. So when I was a kid, look, everybody, we give so much money to insurance companies. We hate insurance companies. You have to fight with them when it's time for them to, when you want to make a claim. Um, But what I've been reading about in Florida is a nightmare that these hurricanes come in and the property damage in the billions and billions and billions of dollars has resulted in insurance companies going before legislative bodies and saying, we cannot afford to insure homes in Florida that are susceptible to, uh, to hurricane damage unless homeowners are paying unthinkable premiums. Are you familiar with the Florida phenomenon?
14: Uh, y- yes, I think uh, everybody in the business has to be because it's uh, been so well publicized. You, you have to be, feel a, a little sympathy for the insurance companies because you can't be forcing them to insure at a level where they're guaranteed to go out of business over the course of time. So that's when the government has to step in, like they do with the national flood program, and say, okay, well, we people need flood insurance, so we'll back up the insurance companies, and if there's more than a certain level of losses, we'll take that hit. Otherwise- like the FDIC does
2: in banking. Exactly.
14: Yep. And, and we were talking during the break that in Florida, because of you know the hurricanes that have been either happening or being threatened or threatening, that uh, the cost of insurance there is sometimes more than the mortgage on someone's house
2: we are speaking with uh, Peter Whalen of Whalen insurance we're getting a primer in well contemporary insurance issues uh, particularly in the in the face of climate change we'll be right back and continue our conversation with Peter Whalen right after this I go there you are anywhere I go there you are I've been getting you. To
0: more talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg coming up right here on whmp it's your home for the resistance tom hartman weekdays at noon get informed then get involved i'm tom hartman from the tom hartman program intelligent talk opinion and debate join me every weekday noon to three right here on whmp 101.5 and 1400 whmp
8: I am retired teacher Mary Cowie, and I plan to vote for Gwen Agna for At-Large School Committee on November 7th. I've known Gwen for 26 years since I started teaching at Jackson Street School. I know Gwen to be a principled leader, a bridge builder, an extraordinary educator, and a compassionate listener. I urge you to vote for Gwen Agna for another term as At-Large member of the Northampton School Committee. Paid for
7: by the Committee to Re-elect Gwen Agna.
5: High school is a time of discovery,
7: of exploring
5: the world and shaping your future. What happens in high school has a deep and lasting effect. At the Hartsburg School, that means discovering more than the right answers to test questions. Textbooks give way to learning through experience, experiments, research, and group projects. Hartsburg students take their science studies into the woods and social studies into the community, working for food justice and applying their own solutions to issues such as climate change or food insecurity. Hartsburg students connect with students worldwide with the Model UN and participate in exchange traveling to and hosting students from countries around the world. Hartsbrook students cultivate an unwavering sense that they can take action in the world and can handle adversity. Is Hartsbrook the right school for your teenager? For parents and caregivers of 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, there's a Discover Hartsbrook evening next Tuesday. Also next Tuesday, a half-day visiting day for students. Register at Hartsbrook.org. The Hartsbrook School on a 55-acre campus on Bay Road, and Hadley.
0: You're listening to "Talk the Talk" with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
2: We're continuing what I find to be a very edifying uh, conversation with Peter Whalen of Whalen Insurance, who's basically giving us a primer in contemporary insurance here. Bill, you had a question during the break.
1: I, I did, Peter. We are inundated with ads on television for various insurance companies for. Allstate and for Liberty and any number of other, the large ones. You're an independent insurance agent, broker, uh, company. Uh, explain that. and But tell us what the difference is and tell us why it makes a difference. I'm not trying to give you a free promo, but I kind of am. Um, uh, why you offer something uh, that Allstate or Liberty doesn't. Bill, there's
14: basically three models for acquiring insurance. There's the one eight hundred number, and we all think of uh, Geico, um, who has some great ads on the TV. They're very effective marketers. And then, and and that's that's it. You call that eight hundred number, you're dealing with someone in a, in a call center. Um, there's no local person to deal with. Then you have uh, what they call captive insurance companies, and Allstate is a good example of that, where they have agents, and they might be in town. They don't have them in Massachusetts so much because we're sort of unique here. Uh, But if you go into an Allstate agent, uh, you could sit down with someone, but they're only going to have Allstate products. So if Allstate decides that they had a bad year and they need to increase their prices by 20%, the Allstate agent can't shop it to other companies. And then there's my model, which is an independent. I represent... I do most of my business with four or five companies, but I have access to probably you know, 10 beyond that if there's uh, special circumstances. So that if one of the companies uh, decides to increase uh, uh, their rates significantly, I can go to my other companies and see if I can get a better deal for my clients.
1: And are we talking about home insurance, car insurance, uh, boat insurance, other kinds of insurance? What are we talking about? Yes. <laughs> it's all of That's those. That's a great answer. Yes. It's
2: all of those. We hear, Peter Whelan, about the advantages of bundling. What is bundling and what's the advantage?
14: Well, bundling is when you put your house in your cars with the same insurance company. And there are tremendous benefits. A lot of our companies will go up to a 30% discount on their homeowners rates if you give them your auto, your auto insurance as well. You'll probably get about a 5% discount on your auto, but up to 30 on, on the homeowners. So it's Why does very that
1: significant. Why does that work for the companies? I mean, you're, you're, the, the danger, the liability for your house burning down or having significant damage doesn't change depending on whether you're insuring your car with them too. They're, they're getting more
14: premium overall. They're locking you in more. It's harder to leave. It's not impossible by any stretch. We do it all the time. But it's it's a little bit more cumbersome to leave if you have two or three policies with one company instead of one. Uh, And they feel that if you've got someone
2: with a house and cars, you're probably dealing with a better client. Last question, and this might be the biggest marshmallow question you're going to get today, uh, which is, when you say you're an insurance agency, is the principal the consumer? Are you an agent for the insured or are you an agent for the insurer?
14: Technically, we are an agent for the insurer. We represent the insurance companies. But in practice, we're really looking out for the client because they're the ones who give us the business. That's how we make our revenue. We would be uh, short-sighted to not work hard to satisfy our clients. And if that means taking insurance, a client's insurance from one company to another to make them happy— and save them money, we'd be foolish not to do that, because the goal is to keep that client for many years. It, you don't make money in the first year. There's a lot of work putting an insurance program together. But every year you renew it, it becomes more profitable.
2: And uh, in, in the next 15 seconds, you live in a very small community. Everybody knows each other. It must be important to maintain that feeling that I'm being represented by my insurance agent.
14: Yes, I, I I would always advocate for going for a local independent agent. So because we we care a lot. You're gonna see us on the soccer line, you know, the sidelines of the soccer field. You're gonna see us out to dinner. We care, we're gonna work hard for you.
2: Peter Whelan, I am so grateful that you joined us today and I know a little bit more than I did before we started. So thank you so much. Listeners, thank you for joining us today. Remember, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk.
13: The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult hoping to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam. The Literacy Project offers free classes at five locations in Franklin and Hampshire counties. We also offer classes to help you prepare for college and to help you plan for a career.
10: If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you.
13: To find out about Literacy Project classes in Northampton, call 413-584-6755. To find out about our classes in Greenfield, Orange, Amherst, and Ware, check us out online at literacyproject.org. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you want support furthering your education and accomplishing career goals. If you want to learn,
10: the Literacy Project is the place for you.
0: WHMP, Northampton, and WRSI HD2, Turners Falls, WHMP.com.